Good morning. How you doing? A little all over the place? Yeah, me too. Um, during uh, worship, I think during the prayer, did you guys, you heard the thunder? <laughs> like sometimes in worship that can be a little bit like, uh-oh. Like, <laughs> um, I actually really love worship in the middle of a storm. Um, just storms are kind of calming to me. They're soothing to me. But I think it's also a pretty good metaphor. Um, like that's what life is really like, right? For the most part, we're coming to God worshiping in the middle of a storm. Um, you guys probably know, just before we start, as I feel like if I don't say this, I might get emotional later. So um, in the past month, I've lost, um, I've lost the two men in my life who were discipling me. Um, I've lost my father-in-law about a month ago, and then just last week, we lost Sam Sterrett, who would sit in the second pew at 11 o'clock every Sunday. He was a 96-year-old brother and spiritual father, um, and we did a service yesterday. Um, so in some ways, I, uh, you know, grieving and all that kind of stuff, but I kind of feel like I've lost my rudder. I feel like I don't know what direction I'm going. Um, so we're just trusting the Holy Spirit uh, and doing a little counseling. <laughs> um, and we will get through it. Um, but I just share that with you, one, just to be transparent so you know where I'm at. Uh, two, just to tell you that anything that happens in this place, it's always this way, but anything that happens in this place, it's all the Holy Spirit. Um, so if there's anything that this season is teaching me is like less of me and more of him, because um, I really don't have anything um, other than just what the scriptures say, and we'll share that with you guys. Um, so yeah, so whatever it is, I mean, I'm not the only one who here is here going through loss and sadness and mourning and all that kind of stuff. I know you're all there in one way or another as well. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scriptures and see what God has for us today. Uh, Father, we are all coming from just a variety of places um, some are just coming from peace and joy, and I'm grateful for that. I thank, I praise you for that. Uh, some of us are um, coming just from, I don't know, maybe the doldrums of regular life, like nothing exciting or good or bad. Nothing's going on, just it's life. Um, so maybe, maybe we need a spark you know, just to remind us of the joy in this life. And then some of us are just here really suffering and really hurting and a lot of pain. Um, and it can feel like, uh, this is just the routine that we go through, but God, we pray that when we come and gather that, that you're going to give us a fresh word, that you're breathing on us, your Holy Spirit, um, that you're not only giving us comfort and conviction, but you're empowering us and making us ready for the work that you have. So in whatever place we're coming from, um, let's pray that you'd meet us there, that you would give us your peace, that you would guide us forward that none of us would stand in the way, but that it would all be your work through your spirit so that we can have confidence when we go out into the world and know that we're on the right track, we're doing the right thing, that we are being vehicles for your grace and mercy and forgiveness everywhere we go. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. I meant to tell you guys a couple weeks ago, but our brother Marcus over here, um, he's coming from a place of joy and utter exhaustion. Am I right? His sweet wife delivered their first child how many days ago? Two weeks. Yeah. Amen. Man, what a way to become a dad, a sweet little girl. That's awesome. And how'd you get away this morning? Okay, good, in-laws. <laughs> Praise the Lord for in-laws. 
All right, here we go. John chapter 20. It says, on the evening of that day, this is Easter day. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, that's just the Greek word for twin. Uh, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail marks were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is the word of the Lord. So I want you to notice right away what 11 disciples minus Thomas, notice what they were doing on that first Easter evening. Were they celebrating? Well, they had locked themselves away. They were hiding for fear that their stories might end the same way Jesus' story seems to have ended, by hanging in shame and defeat on a Roman cross. Now, those disciples were ready to follow, ready, willing to follow their master almost anywhere. They just weren't ready to follow him there. <laughs> Not yet. You're probably aware that each of them would eventually carry their own cross. Each of them will suffer in tragic and profound ways for the cause of Christ because they believe that the resurrected Christ was really there, that it was true. But on that first Easter morning, Easter evening, I'm sorry, they're locked away. They're hiding in fear. Matthew's gospel tells us that when the disciples, when the 11 met Jesus in Galilee, it says when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Not before they saw him, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. In Luke's gospel, there are two disciples who weren't a part of the original 12. When Jesus came and spoke to them, Luke tells us that they stood still, their faces downcast in the presence of the resurrected Christ. They went on to walk and talk with Jesus on the road to Emmaus for a really long time, but the whole time they had no idea who he was or what was going on. Like that's the scene that the scriptures paint of the first Easter evening. Fearful doubters needing evidence that the unimaginable is true. And it was true. The world had already been turned upside down. But his disciples had no idea. And they had no idea what would happen in their lives next. When we celebrated Easter two weeks ago in a crowded room, and as we continue to celebrate the resurrection each and every Sunday in worship, I think sometimes it's really easy to forget just how chaotic and troubled Jesus' followers were in those first few days after the world was turned upside down. Like, consider everything that happens in these seven short verses that I read. Jesus first comes to his disciples, even though fears had locked the door. Jesus delivers on his promises. He brings them both peace and joy, just like he said he would. 
Jesus shows them the wounds of his crucifixion. The resurrected body of Christ still has the wounds of his suffering. Jesus sends his disciples just as he was sent. He breathes into them the Holy Spirit. He declares that his disciples have the power to forgive or to retain sins. And one disciple simply refuses to believe without evidence. It's a lot going on in seven verses. So the question is, at least for the person writing the sermon, <laughs> what are we going to focus on? Well, I think there's a way to walk through this whole text and wrestle with the whole truth that's proclaimed in these seven short verses. The truth that because of the resurrection, everything has changed. So let's start with fear. And we talked about it a little bit already. We know at this point, they at least heard the news from Mary Magdalene, the story that Sabrina preached last week. They've heard the news from her that she believes Jesus is alive. She said she saw him. The disciple John, he was there at the empty tomb. And even though he didn't fully understand what was going on, it tells us that he believed. Peter was also there. They were both there at the empty tomb. Yet now here they are that evening with the others behind a locked door. You see, they stayed locked away in that room for fear of the Jewish leaders. Even if it was true, even if it was true what they were hearing that Jesus was alive, they were still overcome by fear. Like you might think that if the world had really turned upside down, if death had truly lost its sting, the disciples, they might have a little more faith. They might have a little more courage. They might trust in the risen Christ to carry them through whatever might come their way. Not yet. And to be honest with you, this actually makes sense to me. And I think a lot of you might be able to relate. Because the truth is just hearing the Easter story, even when we come to believe evidence that Christ has been raised from the dead, fear is still a common experience among many of us, even in the church today. Like the disciples, they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. What are you afraid of? Like every week, I have the chance to meet with many of you, to talk to you, to listen to you as I listen to other voices in our community and in our culture. At least right now, it seems to me like disciples of Jesus are afraid that one, our country will take away our freedoms and two, that our culture is gonna take away our religion. Okay, so even in those fears, we gather together, we worship, we sing our hallelujahs, we use our voices to sing those songs, but we still remain paralyzed by fear and dread. It's as if we don't realize the power that's being described by the songs that we sing. Death has been defeated. The world's been turned upside down. Yet Jesus' disciples still gather together to worship, fearful and doubting. We hear his voice calling to us, but we stand with our faces downcast. Like we are called to go out into the world to tell everyone that everything has changed, but we remain hiding behind these walls behind doors, whether they're locked or not. And listen, no guilt. I'm just describing what is so often the reality that we see in the church today. I think this just helps us relate to those first disciples. The question the text is asking of us is do those locked doors keep Jesus out? <laughs> right, Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, peace be with you. 
A tombstone couldn't hold him in. Doors locked from fear can't keep him out. And what I think is so sweet is that Jesus doesn't barge into that room and ridicule them for hiding. He doesn't berate them for being fearful and faithless. He doesn't say a negative word to them at all. All he says to them is peace. One author reminds us that peace is the antidote to fear. So in our fear, this morning, whatever it is, he's offering us the same word, peace. The story now shifts. It shifts from the perspective of the disciples to the person of Jesus. In the midst of that fear, what does he do? The first thing he does is show them his wounds. Evidence that the worst that this world could do to us has been overcome. It's been defeated. And without any guilt, without really any dramatic tension at all, he simply shows them his hands. He shows them his side. And when he does so, it's like he's silently asking them, okay, now what are you still afraid of? See, I think this is really important. Like the disciples only moved from fear to joy, not when they first saw Jesus, They only made that move from fear to joy after they saw the wounds of his crucifixion. And Tim Keller explains this really well. He says this, he says, the last time the disciples saw Jesus, they thought those scars were ruining their lives. Now they understand the scars and the sight and memory of them will increase the joy of the rest of their lives. Seeing Jesus Christ with his scars reminds them of what he did for them The scars they thought had ruined their lives actually saved them. And remembering those scars will help many of them endure their own crucifixions. You see, the reality is an empty tomb wouldn't be enough evidence, right? Like the body could have just been stolen. An appearance to the women, that wasn't enough either. I mean, people see things. One in eight people see someone that they love that they have lost. It's a pretty common occurrence. People see things. An appearance in the room that night might not have even been enough. It could have been a ghost. But the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side, physical evidence of the physical body of the resurrected Christ, the same one who suffered on the cross, that was the evidence they needed to take the next step. Like poor Thomas. (laughs) Poor Thomas. This honestly almost makes me a little mad. (laughs) Like, he said he couldn't believe until he touched the wounds of Jesus. And he's labeled throughout the history of the church as what? Doubting Thomas. That is nonsense. He's honest, Thomas. (laughs) They were all doubting. They were all afraid. He's the only one who said it out loud. They all needed evidence that it was really true. We're talking about the resurrection from the dead, y'all. Jesus didn't ask him or any of them to just take a blind leap of faith. He didn't just disappear. He offered them evidence so that Thomas and the others could come to trust that it was true. Because Jesus knows that fearful doubters need some evidence. So that's what he offers them. Well, Jesus is not asking us to take a blind leap of faith. Christianity is not a refuge for the stupid and irrational. It is a reasonable faith. It's faith but it's a reasonable faith built on evidence. Jesus left witnesses behind to provide evidence that it really happened. And because it really happened, everything has changed. 
So entering into that fear and that doubt, he showed them his hands, he showed them his side, and he says to them for a second time, peace. And then we have another turn in the story because everything is about to change for the disciples. Like Jesus doesn't just provide the antidote to fear by offering them peace for a second time. This time he's offering them peace to get them ready because the camera is about to turn. The story is about to change. The resurrected Christ has been revealed, but now the camera turns from Jesus to everyone else in the room. The focus shifts from Christ's new life to ours. Because in all four gospels, the resurrection appearances, they come along with a commissioning of some sort. In Mark, it's for the women to go tell the brothers. In Matthew, it's for all the disciples to go and make disciples of the nations. Luke continues the resurrection story in the book of Acts. He tells us that Jesus' disciples will serve as his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But in John's gospel, in John's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples this, just as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And we need to stop for a second and think about what that really means. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father, he sends us. Like, what exactly does that mean? Is he saying that now we are to become his body on earth? Is he saying that now we are to be the ones who extend mercy and grace and forgiveness while we call a lost world to repentance? Is he saying that we might be asked to suffer and even lay down our lives? Like one author says this, he says, to be assigned by the risen Christ a set of evangelizing tasks, that's one thing but to be shown his wounds and then sent into the world as he was sent, that's something else entirely. You see, Jesus is not sending his disciples out into the world armed with nothing but a story. He sends them out with a mission, with his mission. He sends them out with power because he knows that they can't do it on their own strength, so he gives them his. It says, after this, he breathed on them. Other translations, he breathed into them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Like, do you see what he's doing? Make some connections. Go all the way back to the garden like we like to do. Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Can you see where Jesus and his disciples are? Like where they actually are? Like they're physically in a locked room, but they're actually right back in the garden. The resurrected Christ breathing new life into them just as the creator breathed life into the first created beings. Everything that came undone in Genesis 3, that breath of life twisted and perverted, now it's been cleansed. It's being made right again. Jesus breathed into his followers the life of new creation. Yes, they will one day experience death and resurrection just like their Savior did. But that breath of new creation, that power of the spirit of the living God now lives in them and empowers them to do what they might have imagined was possible only for Jesus himself. And that brings us to the heart of the passage. Everything in this passage is leading us right here. And honestly, this is the part I wanted to avoid, but you can't. <laughs> Because this sounds kind of crazy. The resurrection appearance of Jesus, yes, it is of course to give evidence that Jesus is not dead, he's really alive. 
But this passage is also about the implications of the resurrection for those who are left behind, for followers of Jesus while we are here on earth. It's about the work we are sent to do while we wait with anticipation for the day when he'll come again. It says this, after he said this, he breathed into them, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. I imagine the disciples were thinking what many of us might be thinking right now. Say what? <laughs> um, like I thought only God can forgive sin. I mean, that's true, but Jesus still said it. So how do we understand this? I think there are levels to this, different ways of looking at it which can help us understand the depth of what Jesus is saying. And let me start by being really clear. That is what Jesus said. This isn't some weird translation issue. Jesus clearly said to his disciples, now that you have received the Holy Spirit living in and moving through you, if you forgive sins, they are forgiven. If you hold on to sins, they're held on to, they're retained. So think about this from a couple different angles. The first one, just in our relationships with one another, this actually isn't that radical of a thing to say. Like think about how it plays out. If somebody sins against you, if you forgive them, if you truly forgive them, they're forgiven. And then reconciliation is possible, right? The relationship can be restored. If you don't forgive them, then there's no forgiveness. And that broken relationship stays that way because you're holding on to that offense. It's still there, it's coming between you. That sin is just hanging around in the air. Like throughout the scriptures, Jesus' followers are called to be forgivers, to forgive one another. One translation of this passage says it this way, and I really like how it puts it. This is the message. It says, if you forgive someone's sins, they're gone for good. If you don't forgive sins, then what are you gonna do with them? <laughs> I love that. If you don't forgive sins, what are you gonna do with them? Like maybe you've heard the saying, I don't even know who originally said this. It's not from the Bible, but it rings true. Not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. <laughs> it's true, right? Non-forgiveness, it, it torments the offended party like sometimes more than the offender. Somebody might really hurt me and they could care less about it. Like whether I forgive them or not, it doesn't matter to them. But it definitely matters to me. It impacts me, it affects the kind of life that I'm able to live after that sin has been committed. If I can't forgive, what am I doing? I'm retaining it, I'm holding on to it. So that's one level. If you don't forgive sins, what are you gonna do with them? And anyone can forgive these horizontal sins, but it's hard. And I don't think forgiveness like this comes naturally to us. Sometimes the, the offense is so terrible, forgiveness is truly a radical act. So God's spirit living in and moving through us, it makes that power to forgive more accessible. If we're filled with the breath of God, we become people who are quicker to forgive than we are to seek revenge. And that's a good thing for the world. But there's a vertical reality here too, between us and God. Like God is the only one who can ultimately cleanse us of our sins, right? Who truly forgives sin against one another and our sin against God. And he accomplished that task. He finished that job in Christ 
God has done what had to be done so that sin could not only be forgiven, but our relationships can be redeemed and restored. Because the goal of forgiveness is always a restored relationship. And that plan is now complete. God did the work to make it all possible. What he's given us is the task to now go and implement that plan throughout the world. Put that plan to practice. We are not implementing God's plan by our own power, by our own authority, but we are now being made into vehicles through which God's forgiveness and love is being offered to the whole world. We are his agents sent into the world as broken and as lost as it is. We are sent into the world. We are empowered by the spirit of God, which both convicts and comforts sinners. We are sent into the world as vehicles of God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. Like we are now voices in the wilderness who are crying out, who are calling a lost and sinful world to repentance. Not to obedience to my preferences or my point of view or my political ideology, calling them to trust and obey King Jesus. We are now people who are called to offer the same gift of forgiveness that was offered to us. Forgiveness that leads to redemption and restoration and a life beyond anything we could imagine or build for ourselves. Y'all, before Christ saved me, I was lost. So I have no business, I have no authority to offer forgiveness to the world out of a spirit of superiority or judgment. I have no authority to do that on my own. But just as someone else was a vehicle that guided me and brought me to forgiveness and repentance, I am now a vehicle for God's plan to bring that same salvation to a lost world. Not because I'm a pastor, because I'm in Christ. That means so are you. You were called to that same work. So let me finish with this, because if we're following the pattern of the story as it's told, we need to, we need to consider a couple things and ask ourselves some really hard questions. And the first hard question, in light of all this, what are we still afraid of? Everything has changed. We believe Christ has risen from the dead. The worst this world can do to us, death itself has been defeated, it's been overcome, it no longer has the final say. So what are we so afraid of? What are you so afraid of? And look, I can't answer that question for you. All I can do is remind you that no matter how many deadbolts you use to lock that door, if a tombstone couldn't keep Jesus in, your locked doors can't keep Jesus out. And that means that all your locked doors are doing are keeping you inside. All those locked doors are doing is keeping you from being obedient to Jesus' command on your life. Like all I can do is remind you that Jesus enters into your fear and he offers you one word, peace. And then he sends you out just as his father sent him. To stay inside is to be disobedient. Maybe you're still afraid because maybe you have doubts. Well, friends, you're in really good company. <laughs> like the first disciples worshiped him while some doubted. Like maybe you're wrestling with the resurrection. Your rational mind is just struggling with this new reality. That's fine. Keep wrestling. Just keep showing up. It's okay to ask. Your doubt isn't the problem. But if you're unwilling to take that doubt to the feet of Jesus, that's what's going to keep you from truly believing. 
Like, go home today, read the rest of John chapter 20. Like I said earlier, Thomas asked Jesus to give him evidence so that he can believe, so that he can declare that Jesus is his Lord and his God. And Jesus never once condemns or disciplines Thomas for needing evidence. All he does is give him the evidence he needs. Jesus is ready to give you the evidence you need so that you can trust in him. Just be open and be honest, look for it, and then respond to it. And the final thing, maybe, maybe you're not, maybe the other two aren't so much the problem, but maybe you're not ready to accept the call to be sent into the world just as the Father sent Jesus because you're afraid of the world into which you are being sent. I'm going to say that again because what I'm going to say next is hard. So uh, maybe you're not ready to accept the call because you're afraid of the world that you're being called into. So I'm going to say this in love. It's time to gird your loins. It's time to listen to Jesus because he's not asking. He's commanding. He commands his followers to go. So will you trust and obey the resurrected Christ or not? Will you be his disciple? Will you be his witness? Will you tell the world? And this passage is showing us that the best way to start telling the world is by being a vehicle of God's radical forgiveness. Because it's not an argument that builds bridges, it's forgiveness. Arguments build walls, forgiveness tears them down. Arguments break relationships, forgiveness restores them, even the ones we might think are beyond repair. Y'all listen, if we claim that we have been forgiven, and if we claim that we carry the message of God's forgiveness of our sins, how is the world gonna respond when we withhold that forgiveness from them? Whether it's by not forgiving them ourselves, are not telling them the good news that they have been forgiven by their maker. How will they respond to the message of forgiveness when the messengers won't forgive? Preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. The best way to begin preaching this message is to be a forgiver. And for some of us, we need to start with our own families, right? With our friends. And then we can move on to our neighbors. Like we can't restore relationships if we're afraid to be in them. So friends, like don't be afraid of the world around you. It is a dark place. But don't be afraid of the darkness. You are the light. Embrace that world with loving arms, with the loving arms of God by the power of his spirit. Lovingly and graciously tell the truth Tell the truth. Call the world to repentance, to trust and obey King Jesus, and then just invite them to follow you as you follow Christ. That's it. And listen, the world might hurt you. There's a lot of ways it can hurt us. But you have to remember the purpose of this story. Jesus carries the marks of the worst that this world can do to us. He overcame it. He defeated it. So as you're looking at the wounds of the resurrected Christ, he's just saying to you, peace. Now, what are you afraid of? 
Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you have sent us. Give us the courage and the strength to go. To not just wander through this world with our heads down, afraid of everything that's standing around the next corner. Not overly confident in our power and our strength and our authority, but supremely confident in yours. Trusting the good news that you are not only risen from the grave, but you have breathed on us your spirit, the spirit that brought you back from the dead, lives and moves in us. That makes us the most powerful body on the planet. What do we have to be afraid of? So give us the courage and the strength to go, to gather here together every week, to be built up, to be reminded of this truth so that we have the confidence to go. Bring this good news to the world and we can start by forgiving those who have offended us. God, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.